Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Geraldine Dreyfus has a wide, distinguished background in the arts, extensive experience in consulting in the philanthropic sector, and participates on numerous boards and initiatives. She is the founder and board chair of the Utah Film Center, a nonprofit that curates free screenings and outreach programs for communities throughout Utah. In 2007, she co-founded Impact Partners Film Fund with Dan Kogan, bringing together financiers and filmmakers so that they can create great films that entertain audiences, enrich lives, and ignite social change. Since its inception, IP has been involved in the financing of over 70 films. In 2013, Geraldine became a founding member of Game Changer, the first for-profit film fund dedicated to exclusively financing narrative features directed by women. Geraldine's independent executive producing and producing credits include the Academy Award-winning Born into Brothels, Academy Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning The Square, Academy Award-nominated and Peabody Award-winning The Invisible War, and multiple film festival winners such as Misrepresentation, Meet the Petals, Anita, In Football We Trust, The Hunting Ground, Dreamcatcher, Alive Inside, Bending the Ark, Step, and The Judge. Variety recognized Geraldine in their 2014 Women's Impact Report, highlighting her work in the entertainment industry. And Carol, I know you are a major fan of Geraldine's films. Yes, I am. Thank you, Claire. And Geraldine, I'm just so proud that you've joined us today to share your knowledge with us about documentary films and film funding. Thank you. You're so welcome. Well, let's get started because uh, this time goes really fast and everybody is interested in what you have to say. So we thought we'd start with the fact that you've been going to Sundance Film Festival since 2004. So what changes have you seen for documentary films and filmmakers over these years? Well, it's just been huge. I mean, um, I remember being there when Robert Redford said, we're going to do for documentaries what we've done for independent film, and feeling like that was kind of a historic moment. And it it really was, because really before Sundance put the resources behind documentaries, they were kind of step-cousins. You know, they were... um, Afterthoughts. They were kind of not mainstreamed into programming and festivals um, or in our culture. So to have documentaries sort of play alongside independent narratives and premieres, and really, I think for people as festival goers right now, it's it's the categories are sort of 
insignificant in terms of like people don't just go to see documentaries or don't just go to see a particular genre that they're they're really kind of um cross pollinated they're so they're i think as from the consumer perspective that's one big change and then there's big there's become a market for documentaries so you know before two thousand and four there wasn't a market for documentaries very few documentaries ever got ever got sold um and ever had theatrical life so we've seen massive amounts of change um you know since then and now they stream and they sell to global platforms and um can be disseminated with all sorts of new technology so it's just it feels like a couple lifetimes ago 2004 <laughs> yes it does because i mean if you go if you go back 15 20 years and someone says oh there's a documentary on the film, on tv tonight they'd say oh my gosh that sounds terrible i wouldn't give up my tv viewing for a doc you know but now they announce it with great enthusiasm and oh everybody's so lucky it was a great documentary you, somehow the whole consciousness shifted yeah, I mean, I think we still need to get um, better at getting and at growing our audiences in the nonfiction. I, I like to call documentaries nonfiction narratives, at least the ones that I like to make, because they're, you know, they are nonfiction, but they are character driven, and really the the, the genre has really been deeply influenced by um, music videos and and narrative dramatic features and. Um, finding ways to tell really important stories, but that can be done narratively, really through character versus linearly. Yes. Well, in uh, 2015, Variety quoted you saying that there's a huge interest around trauma and sexual violence right now, and that's a space that I'm dedicated to exploring. And then you said we felt sort of like the canary on the rim, that there's something shifting gears in our culture. And I don't think we fully understand it yet. So with the intense focus now on sexual harassment and violence in the media uh, and violence in our lives and workplaces, how much have the gears shifted in our culture? Well, I I think it's just... um epically big and a shift and I think people are still trying to um understand it and 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 recalibrate right you know so I think that um I think that the fact that as many women are telling the truth about their lives there's this wonderful line in Terry Tempest Williams book when we were when women were birds that said if women told the truth about their lives, the world would crack open. And I think the world is cracking open right now um, because the kind of um, misogyny and uh, shameful behavior, um, violent behavior um, that has gone on in behind closed doors and corridors of power across industries um, is now being exposed. And, it's not even that people aren't shocked by it anymore. I think people are unpacking it and trying to make sense of it at a very deep cultural level because I think this this imbalance in terms of power has been very um, it's been very subtle at some levels um, and then very secret. Uh, yet, um, as we learn from the Me Too movement, there hasn't been a woman that hasn't had an experience that couldn't raise her hand and say me too. So at least not one that I've met yet. 
So it's just it's just something shifting that I think is really um, going to get to the core of uh, of really understanding what it means to be human and how what you know what what does equality mean and what do partnerships mean. I mean the the ground rules will definitely um, be changing and they already are. That's wonderful, wonderful. So now, how much do you think uh, your documentaries played in helping that shift in our understanding of sexual violence? I think they've been huge. I think, you know, the invisible war in the hunting ground, um, you know, just has set itself up for our next film, which will be about sexual assault in Hollywood. And they are, they they, they stand on each other's shoulders. But a lot of the... Um, like the Lady Gaga uh, song and video piece that we've done, they were all strategic. They were all meant to to be like a pod. So funding Audrey and Daisy and um, funding I Am Jane Doe, all of these films, people, you know, a lot of investors would say, well, there's that's already been covered. And we're like, no, it hasn't been covered enough. Like you just have to keep hammering away, looking at the bias that police officers have about young American boys that are football players if they've raped a girl, you know, parents. Like, we all had these biases that we didn't really even understand um, until we were confronted with looking at what, you know, what we could discover that young men and, and women's roles were being discussed on the Internet and cyberspace. I mean, it just it's a whole other world now, and, and it's just kind of revealed to me anyways, just really how misogynistic it is. I mean, the kinds of comments you see on social media platforms are so shocking and chilling, but they're so deeply held. I mean, the beliefs are deeply held, or the the, the instinct to want to hold on or shame or lash out, is it, it's right there. So you know we're on the cusp of something when you start to see these kinds of reactions. Absolutely. Um well, we both know that it takes years for documentaries uh, to, from concept to completion to really reach an audience. So um, I was just thinking, I'm, I'm sure that you have to go through ups and downs. Like you were saying, when people, I've had that people say to me, well, they, well you did that. You, you funded that same thing two years ago. Yes, but it's, it's only a beginning. We have to stay with this concept. So do you need to encourage your crews to get going? Do they get discouraged at times when it's an uphill battle for funding or getting the, the interviews you want? Well, I mean, any all documentary work is hard whether you have the funding or not it's still hard work like and like even though we have completely financed this series on sexual assault in Hollywood you know getting the interviews um building the respect and the trust and the rapport with some of the actors um and uh directors that have been victims of sexual assault takes time um but i think it's getting easier because people are talking about these things. I mean, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, like 10 years ago I said that I was interested in trauma because I was sexually molested when I was 13. I mean, people were shocked, and I was criticized for saying that publicly. You know, like, why would you want to bring attention to yourself that way? You know, and I'm like, because it's the truth, and this is what's happened, and that is why I'm making these films. You know, I want to understand it and also make sure that it happens you know, another generation. So, exactly. 
So it's sort of that shame or or the fact that I would talk very openly about, um, not openly in a bad way, but about my divorce. You know, why why did you get divorced? Well, my husband was in another relationship. It was no longer appropriate for me to be married to him. That that to, I got so much you know backlash for that. Like, you know, why are you saying telling that part of the story? And like, because it's the truth. You know? And and you know, we protect our children. We protect our families. We even protect our ex house our husbands and our abusers by not saying what the truth is. So I think if there's been a perpetuation of this cultural idea that you don't talk about these things. They're unseemly in some way. But they actually, they're very prevalent, and so they have to be talked about. That's my opinion anyway. Oh, yes, they do. The more people who will speak up, the more conscious then the, the uh, people in our country and around the world become of this. Uh, and once you bring it into the consciousness, then it can be healed. But as long as it's hidden, we're going to deal with this for a long time. That's right. So you're making films to change belief patterns, and I'd like you to talk about this, about changing belief patterns. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we can actually say that we've done that, but I do feel like we have, um, you know, we, there's some films that we make that we know we're making this film and it's going to change a law, right? You know, we we can we can go into it understanding like we did the movie Lioness and in the movie Lioness women in combat in in Iraq were not being paid as soldiers because they were nurses or they were working in kitchens but they were taken out into military interrogations because culturally you had to have a woman with you if you were doing a military interrogation so the 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 idea was that these women should be getting the same benefits as men in combat and we were able to show that they were in positions of combat, and the law was changed. So that was very clear. That it, it might. It, it also it also addressed some of the cultural beliefs or um, about whether women should be in co- combat or not. But that wasn't the point of our movie. The movie was to change the law, and the law did get changed. A lioness act was made, and women were compensated ret- retroactively, and women get compensated differently. Um, in the armed services. These other films that are really looking at a widely held belief, like women ask for or women bring attention to themselves are asking to be raped, that is a belief that we don't really understand how deeply held it is within our culture. But we, So we try to go at these ideas um, through storytelling, through putting human faces to them, but also through data. So, for example, in every single crime, whether it's assault and battery, whether it's arson, um, whether it's, uh, you know, forgery, or whether it's false accusations of spousal abuse or um, rape, 2 to 6% of every single one of those crimes has people that are frauds, that are factually, that are falsely accusing, that are basically saying that their house was put on fire when in fact they they did it themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Two to six percent of women accusing a man of rape or harassment are falsely reporting. 
But we experience a story about a woman being sexually assaulted as if 96% of all women falsely report. And that disconnect is what's interesting to me. Why don't we believe women? You know, no police officer would say that they showed up at your door and you'd been robbed. What were you wearing when your television was robbed? <laughs> you drinking when your television was robbed? What, what? You mean you weren't even in your house when your television was robbed? I mean, it just wouldn't happen, right? So no. how do you get something that's that pervasive that even young women and girls believe that somehow it's their fault, right? You know, so it, it's such a deeply held belief. And so, you know, obviously there's literature written about it. There are very thoughtful people that have spent their life thinking about this. There are trauma therapists that can explain it. We try to bring all of those kinds of resources and insights into our storytelling. Um, but at the core of what we're trying to do is try to get at these widely, widely held beliefs. Um, because they hold us back and they don't look at the collateral damage uh, and cost that happens to, you know, women that um, are accused of being, you know, of, of lying or, or, or people not believing them. Um, so, you know, we're now trying to just really look at what what is it like when, you know, you get sexually assaulted by someone like Harvey Weinstein and you don't get your next role. What What loss was that to our culture um, to not have that woman's voice fully expressed in the film world. Or if you're sexually harassed and raped by a Supreme Court justice and you and you you got picked to be their clerk based on your talent, what's the loss to American society when that woman no longer practices law? You know, those, those kinds of things, those hidden costs, um, you know, not, not to mention the sort of trauma and, thematic kind of costs of trauma and, and, and rape um, just haven't been thought about and talked about. Um, and now they are, you know. I mean, I read an article this morning. I was There were two things I read that kind of shocked me this morning for different reasons. One was there was an article arguing that the U.S. Olympic team should be banned from the Olympics just the way the Russians were for doping because they allowed a system – of sexual abuse to happen and people knew about it. Like that the, 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 the U.S. Gymnastics Olympics Committee should be banned because they looked the other way. Now, that never would have happened. Two months ago it wouldn't have happened, never mind two years ago, right? I'm not saying right. that it, it's what should happen, but the idea that is some people are writing about that was shocking. And surprising in, in you know, just showing us how much we're, we're, we're kind of learning and then the second one was that this year's um, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition is incorporating the Me Too movement, which, I, I mean, I can't even wrap my brain around that one. But if you look <laughs> it up online, there's all these pictures, and they have they're very, you know, kind of very suggestive, beautiful photos of uh, women. But instead of the Swimsuit Edition, it says things like, survivor or me too or you know like all these campaign and i don't know how i feel about that because i just watched that 10 minutes before we got on the radio show but you know it is influencing our culture there's just no question that people are thinking about this and and talking about it now whether that example of the sports illustrated swimsuit is co-opting that question i i i haven't really kind of thought it through enough to have an opinion but 
it does show the impact of that we're having on the culture. Absolutely. Right. Well, um, I found that the hunting ground changed my beliefs about the security of women on the college campuses. I think you did a great job um, in bringing out an enormous amount of information uh, to all of us about the statistics that, that happen of things that do happen on college campuses. So was that the intent of the film to let us know that, hunt, that hunting ground explained that women were not safe, and men too, on the college campuses. Yeah, absolutely. So we made Invisible War. Um, so, uh, you know, like when we when we try to figure out, like, what films we want to finance, like we got uh, had a meeting with Amy Zarian and Kirby uh, Dick, who were directed and produced Invisible War, and they said, listen, we're tracking this story. It, it turns out that right now if you're in the U.S. military, you are more likely to be sexually assaulted um, then hurt in the line of duty. And I'm like, oh. what? And they said, yeah. And I'm like, so you take an idea like that and you say, okay, what is going on culturally in our U.S. military? And how can that be true? How can the place where you're supposed to be watching each other's back and a place that's always been prided itself for, you know, its brethren and its um, its family-like uh, you know, institutional values, it's discipline. How does that happen, right? And so then we went to explore it, and we found out that there, that there was a real chink in the armor that called the chain of command and that there was a conflict of interest. If a woman was sexually assaulted by her, um, by her superior, oftentimes it was a direct report, and if not, the direct report had a conflict of interest because she was sexually assaulted by a good soldier, um, or there was a conflict of interest because the superior didn't want an investigation on their record. So by changing the chain of command so that these, so you could report a sexual assault outside of going to your immediate superior, the reduction and the um, adjudication um, and, and the retribution of, um, of, and I say retribution in the best sense of that word, meaning the accountability, has shifted in the military. So we showed that movie on college campuses. Absolutely after every single screening, women would come up to us and say, this happened to me. The university oh. did the same thing. They swept it under the rug. They told me not to talk about it. Um, they challenged whether they believed me. They weren't protecting me. They made it worse, right? And that's mm -hmm. what women in the military said. You know, here I go in to, to serve the U.S., military, which my father did, and I'm a seventh-generation soldier, and instead of getting protection, I get shamed and humiliated, and my career is destroyed, and the psychological damages of, of all of that were very, very hard for women going into the military with such idealistic, um, you know, motives for serving their country, right? Same young woman, yes. 18, so, here's the, here's, so we started looking into it. First, Amy and Kirby said, oh, my God, there's no way we want to make another film about sexual abuse. <laughs> we're just like, we're all suffering PSTD from Invisible War. We're just, you know, somebody else can make that film. And then the letters kept coming and the bangings on the door and the stories. And then here's the statistic. Okay, right now in America, you are more likely, if you are female, to be raped or sexually assaulted 
if you are 18 years old if you go to college versus not. So you're more likely, you're more at risk for sexual assault if you go to college. Now, how can that be when the American dream is to make education be a portal for growth and self-discovery? I mean, there's something very, very twisted about that statistic. And so then what do you have to do? You have to look at, well, what is the environment that's happening on college campuses? Why is this happening? You know, is it really just a question of frat boys and too much drinking? No. I mean, there, that, there's that, but it, it, there really is kind of um, a perpetrator. There is the same statistics, the same percentage of people that repeatedly groom and and take advantage and rape or sexually assault women um, in, in college-age uh, men is the same as in the military. So it's not all men doing this. It's a, it's a very, it's a smaller percentage of people doing it perpetually. I mean, doing it, you know, not pandemically, but, you know, consistently um, and getting away with it. And so and getting away so with it, right. We tried to show and we tried to show that the universities under Title IX, those that were not taking those claims seriously and providing measures, um, you know, like not forcing a woman that's been sexually assaulted by a man to be in the same class. Like, you know, women would say, well, I don't want to stay in this biology class. I don't want to have to see this person at breakfast. Like, like you know, that, that there was no protection um, for, for this once it, once it was, you know, actually being reported. Those were the kinds of changes that began to be kind of implemented um, and investigated. And there were 175 schools, universities, that were out of compliance um, with their safety. They weren't equally protecting their female students as they were men. So under Title IX, they, you know, they got, um, they got uh, not punished, but they were, they, there was, a, they were fined. And so, and they had to build back <clears throat> the confidence <clears throat> to be relicensed. So, you know, one of the things that we did was that it's part of them being reaccredited, you know, at universities that were out of compliance being reaccredited. The hunting ground became mandatory um, part of the freshman orientation for these universities. So it's like giving kids an inoculation before they go off to college. Hey, you know, this happens. Be careful, you know. Know your rights. Make sure you're reporting things. Don't be a bystander, you know, and, and see this behavior. Begin to understand the distinction of what does it mean to be predatory or grooming, or um, you know, if somebody is intoxicated, you know, and you see men grab, dragging a group of men dragging a group of women off to a room, that nothing good's going to happen there. Like you know, you don't look the other way. So these were all the kinds of things that. We were trying to address in in uh, in that movie, and then took it down to the high school level with Audrey and Daisy, and you know, it's just it's it's um it's a long it's a long game and a long run, and we have to come at it from about you know a hundred different directions in order to really get people to understand this is um a big a big cultural problem that we need to address. Absolutely, that film um, shocked me, and I I was. I loved one scene where they had a big sign that looked like it was in, on uh, a sorority uh, yard, and it said, thank you, mothers, for sending us your daughters. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, you were shocked at some of the things that you saw. You know, the, the kind of um, blatant, um, non-apologetic, you know, that kind of what I would call error, you know, that the, there's another sign we had in that movie when it was, you know, um, SAO, which is a big fraternity, and it's sexual assault expected. SOE, I mean. <laughs> yes, so, I remember that. And you know, so it's like, and, and people think that's funny. Like, you know, it's sort of like, what's funny about that? You no. know, what's funny about the fact that a young girl, freshman in high school, goes to her first party, gets drunk, and four of her friends take off their clothes and write things on her body with magic markers, like slut and whore. What's funny about that? When did that get to be funny? And then take pictures of it and put it on the Internet so that she's shamed the next day and commits suicide within a week. What in the world is funny about that? Absolutely. And why how have young men, many of them who are probably good young men, think that that's funny and to do as a group? Like, what's happened? Yes, how did we come to this? Well, right. one out of every four college students will be raped or uh, attempted sexual assault, and at some colleges, the athletes are above the law and the police are unable to talk to them. That one got me. Yeah, well, that's why I was so proud of that police officer from Notre Dame, which basically quit his job over it. He said, this isn't right. You know, how can I do this? And and I don't think you're going to see that kind of behavior. Um, I think that movie made a huge difference that way. Um, and athletes are under, you know, a huge amount of scrutiny. I have two brothers that are Division One football coaches, and he said, we spend a lot of our time talking about consent, talking about um, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. It's a big part of our job now as coaches. Um, whereas before, the attitude of the coach would be like, oh, she's just, a, you know, a jersey grabber. Watch out. She's just going to try to get you to bed and get you pregnant and ruin your career. You know, like there's, there's actually coaches that would say things like that to their players as opposed to like, what's the appropriate way to be in a relationship period. What are the ground rules around respect to be part of this team? You know, those are the mm-hmm. kinds of things you want your coaches talking to your players about. Um, Cause it's going to take, you know, a, a, a lot of teaching uh, leadership and, um, and admir and you know kind of role modeling um across all sectors and it turns out coaches have huge impact on the belief system of young men. Yes, they have a huge impact and if they don't take the right path with those men they're going to just keep perpetuating the problem that's facing us now that where the women are speaking out about all this but this is has to continue in order for us to change, I believe. Absolutely. Well, um, so that that was a great film, and I'm so happy to hear that they are playing that for when people come into college on the first year. So it's really getting seen a lot, right? And with Invisible War, you know, 70% of all new members of the military going through basic training watch Invisible War as part of their basic training. The military has embraced this film as a tool to help them do a better job. Because they understand that, yes, sexual assault is a problem, but it's not a problem that the military created. It's a problem of our society at large. And one of the other reasons why we were very interested in working on a film about the military is the military has been, you know, remarkably um, 
effective in in accelerating social change. So around race, certainly it did, um, and and around uh, gender, you know, it's 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 helped to normalize. Like with the military, when, when the military takes a stand and integrates um, based on the constitution and and the laws it has a reverberation throughout all of society. So if I'm like, boy, if the military can get this sexual assault problem right and have there be consequences and fairness when it happens and, like, go after it systemically, understanding that there are, you know, perpetrators that, re- that are repeat offenders, then we'll, we'll see that, you know, shadowed and, and, and not shadowed, mirrored in in civilian life, because that has been the case when the military decided to do daycare, you know, and, and, and institute daycare and standards around daycare because there had been abuses in daycare, it changed the way the rest of government daycare programs were done. So that was also a real reason why we looked at the military as like if they if they if they actually own this problem versus trying to cover it up, we'll really see social change. And I'm happy to report that the military is owning the problem. There's still a lot of work to be done, but they are embracing it and they're acknowledging it, and it is a big part of, you know, what they're held accountable for by by their own institution, but also by Congress, which is, you know, another lever. Yes. Oh, and, and all your work is really paying off. You are changing belief systems. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, I was so impressed with all of the statistics and the information in the hunting ground that I just wondered, and you must have uh, spent one or two years in your research and development in order to get all of these um, people lined up and the information. How long did that take you? Well, you know, Amy... Um, Ziering and Kirby Dick are probably two of the best investigative reporters um, and journalists that are in the business right now. And they hired they hired journalists to check out these facts, to look within the Title IX, to work within the Department of Education so that we could really understand it. So a big piece of the funding of that film was the research, what they call the research and development stage, where you're really just sort of saying, is this the problem at the scale that we think it is? You know, what kind of data do we have to back it up? What kinds of questions do we have to ask? What, you know, what is missing? And, you know, what what part of this research will be groundbreaking? And we will bring it to the film. What part of this research needs to be in the film um, as a way of, you know, persuading and, and convincing um, audiences that this actually is factually correct, you know, that this is the problem. Like if you if you talk to presidents of universities, when we first came out and we said we had the statistic one in five, 90% of the university presidents would say that's not happening on my campus. But then when they would do their <laughs> own surveys, they found it was even worse. At Harvard, it was one in four. At Dartmouth, it was one in three. Oh, my right? God. Right. So you're just like you. It, there was a huge disconnect around how much of this was going on that might have been underreported, not reported. When it was reported, it was, you know, nothing really happened as a result of it. So that has definitely changed. Um, I mean, university presidents understand they have a, a huge problem on their hands. It's not just one isolated university. It's not just Notre Dame football or University of Florida football or, 
you know, uh, you know, some Ivy League school that's uh, about powerful elites. It's in every single college and university. That's shocking. That is shocking. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get uh, into some things that uh, that producers and independent filmmakers uh, would, could use. Uh, from what you're saying, you have meetings, you discuss the direction of the film, is this a film to make or not make, and then you make decisions as a group. So usually, do you do you know who you want for your team, and you put that together first, and then you start talking, should we make this film, or how does this work? So, so 90% of all films I've been involved with have been somebody else's idea. So someone, a filmmaking team, like take the example of Amy and Kirby, who have their own production company, come to us at Impact Partners and pitch us an idea. They're like, we want to make a film on sexual assault on college campuses. And then they explain why they think it's fertile ground, why it's important, what the you know, the impact of it could be on the standing on the shoulders of the invisible war. And then we, as the financiers, um, in this particular case, we were, you know, executive producing partners, then help them build the team, bring the resources that they need, you know, use our contacts collectively um, to reach journalists or university presidents that might go on record or follow stories, that, you know, we get leads to, you know, I mean, it's like, it then becomes very collaborative, but um, there's only been a couple of films that we've said, we want to make a film about this and gone out and commissioned and, and like financed it and found the filmmaker to do 90% of it comes from, comes the exact opposite way where a creative filmmaker comes with an idea that has to be told. And we agree. And we're like, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and get you the financing and then, you know, give you the protection and creative freedom to do your job well done because you're the artist. And then we'll help it, you know, kind of make sure that it gets to a market, gets sold, it gets distributed and gets seen, right? Because there's so many, That's um, it. so many different parts of making a film. It's just making one of the film is not alone enough. It then has to be distributed and marketed and, you know, people have to write about it and think about it and it has to be out in the culture as a conversation piece in order for it to have its fully expressed um, impact. Exactly. And getting it out uh, to the communities is the key. But uh, before we go to that, I really wanted to talk about uh, Erica uh, for her film, The Judge. And did she come and pitch you that film? Is that how you got involved with her? Yeah, so Erica and I have a unique story because I've known her since she was 14 years old, and um, she's been um, someone that I've taken just a deep personal interest in her career because she was very gifted and very driven um, in high school, right? And so, you know, she stood out as someone that was um, very ambitious and smart and um, hungry to learn. And so um, we were actually working on the film... I actually recruited her to co-direct the film in Football We Trust because it was a a local story about how Polynesian immigrants had changed American football, and Utah was like at the epicenter of that because the Polynesians were recruited from the the Mormon church, and, you know, it was like all started here, and now the secret sauce of, like, who are the great athletes is out, and yet it's 
sort of another immigrant story um, that hasn't really been told or understood. So we saw this as a way to sort of tell a story um, about Polynesian culture and um, and American football and how it was changing. And I asked Erica to co-direct it because she was from here, and I thought, you know, I knew she could do it. So she was on on break um, while that film was being finished on a on a, a scholarship on a fellowship in Israel and Palestine, and that's where she met the the judge and um, Halud. And she, you know, wrote to me immediately saying, "I've just met the most amazing woman. She's the first female judge that adjudicates Sharia law. I want to follow her. I think there's a film here." So you know, we helped her get some early development money because. I thought it was a great story, and she was so passionate about it. And I knew, I you know, she, she's just someone that you can take to the bank. She's not going to not finish something, right? So <laughs> that's right. And she had access to a unique part of the world, and I thought it was very interesting that they're the first country that had female judges to adjudicate Sharia law was Palestine, not Israel. I mean, Israel Israel now has female. Uh, judges that adjudicate Sharia law, but they don't have any female judges that adjudicate um, uh, rabbinical law. You know, so it's it's just a fascinating little uh, window into the world, and the fact that <clears throat> these judges, there were three of them initially, initially were allowed um, to be judges. The, the the cleric that allowed that to happen then lost his job, so we knew that there were going to be political ramifications. To follow, so it was sort of like let's watch her through her first couple of years being judge and what she's able to do and what she's not able to do and why. So that was the storyline, and um, because Erica speaks Arabic and because she's so respectful with her subject, she, you know, established a beautiful rapport with Khalud and made a beautifully intimate um, film uh, that you know opened at Toronto and. Um, will have a, a wonderful life, and it will be the first time a Palestinian film will be on American public television. So she's brought bringing wow. a voice part of the world that we Americans don't usually hear from. So she, yes. you know, she had a lot of ingredients in in the in the character that she wanted to follow that made sense to us. Like yes, like we don't hear from that part of the world, and most people are going to think, you know, they're going to they're not going to believe that women are going to be allowed to be judges. And then when you see the, how wildly held the beliefs are of Palestinian women, that women are too emotional to adjudicate their divorce cases. You know, and it, it, these, are, these are women saying this about other women. So you just see it goes back to that whole question of where do our beliefs come from um, that have been so paternalistic for so long centuries, you know, and globally. Right. Well, how did she get the judge to wear a camera, and how did she get that approved? I think that's the most incredible achievement in documentary filmmaking uh, in a country like that, where things are there's so many laws. That was an achievement. Well, it was, and you know, the, the fact of the matter is that because there was never a woman judge, and because there was never anybody that wanted to follow. Sharia law. I mean, you have to think about this. I mean, Sharia law is really like it, you, they're really adjudicating domestic violence and um, family disputes and family law and divorce law. So nobody had ever asked to make a film about that. So it was it was sort of like they didn't really know 
to say no. <laughs> so it wasn't like we were like smuggling in cameras and doing something without permits, right? Uh-huh. They didn't know to say no because it was like it was like the novelty. Well, we want to follow this woman. She's the first woman judge. We want to see if she makes a difference. And they're like, okay, well, we're not really happy about her being the first woman judge, but I guess we'll let you do it. And it was it was sort of like a, I don't know. It was I think part of it was just. Um, the fact that she was going to allow this to happen and understood that this was going to help make other women feel like they could go out and do things. You know, it was, it was her determination um, that allowed the film to happen. And, and because she trusted Erica, you know, that was the first and foremost thing. That's the key to most good documentaries is the trust and respect between the filmmaker or filmmakers and the key people for the film, isn't it? That close relationship. Absolutely. Right. Well, I noticed that Regina Scully with Artemis was executive producer of Hunting Ground, and I think she's a godsend to filmmakers. You must you must also agree that she's so good about helping with documentaries. Well, there's actually nobody quite like Regina. Um, she she is the one that actually said we're going to keep telling the story over and over and over until it cracks. She wasn't worried oh. about what the place was going to say. She was she was just like, no, we got to go deeper. No, we got to go again. Like right now, we're doing the sexual assault in Hollywood film, and she's yeah. like, I don't care what we have to do. We, if we have to hire private investigators, we have to crack the, the the child pedophilia ring that happens to young boys. You know, it's a it's an open secret in Hollywood. We got to go after it. Shine the light. Shine the light. She's fearless, and and and, and she, uh, and she doesn't expect an immediate return, but she knows that the culture has shift. I mean, literally over the ten years that she's been doing this, she's she's financed over a hundred films. Oh my goodness! It, that is so incredible. I mean, there's no, there's not another person in the philanthropic landscape that's done more or as much in the most targeted way as Regina Scully. She's extraordinary. Yes. She, she certainly is. I've seen some of the films that she's promoted through From the Heart, and it's just uh, incredible. Her commitment to uh, to documentary filmmaking is wonderful. Well, let me just ask you about getting this, um, getting your project developed. You know, I see so many people come to From the Heart Productions and they apply for our grant, and their and their project is underdeveloped. And when you say to them you need to develop it more, they say, "What does that mean specifically? What am I supposed to do?" So, can you give us a few tips on that part? Well, I can only tell you from our own experience when, you know, we look at 800 films a year and we fund 10 to 12 of them, right? So Impact Partners has become a funnel for our investors. And so we, we have a pretty good sense of like what's out in the space, right? What's, what's in the field, what's being developed, not, not an infinite, you know, not a definitive, um, look but a pretty good representation of films that are being made so when we when a filmmaker comes to us with an idea and it and it, and it looks like it has a lot of promise but uh-huh. they haven't yet been able to develop you know or really know 
who their character is that they're going to follow. They, they're sort of just like just kind of surveying the landscape. We will often say, you know, come back to us when you know who your character is or who your three characters are or who, how you're going to tell this story. Because obviously we agree this is an issue that um, is important, but how you're going to tell that story is really important to whether you're going to be successful and making a film that other people are going to watch, right? So mm-hmm. we're always interested in, in how they're going to tell the story, you know. Um, what's the through line? Who's, where are you dropping me into? Like what, what universe am I being dropped into that I then have to begin to understand and how are you going to explain it to me? So it's, it's, it's less linear and factual and statistic-based, and it's much more, like you can have those statistics. You can c- totally get my attention by saying, you're more likely to be raped if you go to college than not. That has my attention. I can't sleep at night. Like, okay, how are we going to tell that story? Then the filmmaker has to come back and say, this is how we're going to tell it. We found these five activists that are organizing on college campuses. They're talking to each other. They're taking on the universities. Um, They're, they're suing universities. They are, they're, you know, they're being brave and they're finding, um, encouragement by working together and now i can understand how the story that the heartbeat of the story is going to be these college women that were sexually assaulted that are going to take on their alma maters okay got it so it's sort of like you break it down that way um and then you know then you'll amy and kirby will say and then we're going to do the investigation piece on the cover-ups at these universities we're going to do the investigation piece on, you know, what the Department of Education is or isn't doing, and that will fill out the story. So then it's believable. It's not just these five women that are crackpots that are, you know, trying to rabble-rouse on college campuses, um, you, you know, but are, are making a mountain out of a molehill, right? You know, right, you, can, right. you can address all of those stereotypes based on how the filmmaker comes in and says, here are our characters, here's our strategy, Here's what we need, you know, money for in the development stage. Here's what we need money for in the re- in the research and investigation stage. And if somebody can map out some of those things for you, you have a lot more confidence in their ability to finish and execute a, a story. And if if you're if you're working with a filmmaker and they don't have the answers to some pretty basic questions, that doesn't mean they're not going to make a good film or that they're not good people or that they're not smart. You say, come back to us when you have the following questions answered, because we right now we 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 don't have enough um, to be able to assess the risk of this project, um, the efficacy of it, or the impact of it. And you know, we want to help you make a better film, but we're not going to invest in it until we know what you're you know until you can answer these following questions. And and hopefully we do it in a way that doesn't make people feel like they're jumping through hoops. You know, just because we're going to give them money, that's not at all. I mean, there's some basic things that you need to know. And you need to know that a filmmaker knows that they need to know them in order to have confidence that they're the right person to direct the film. Absolutely. That's exactly right. They need to know what they don't know. They have to have the idea of or the stronger ideas, and it has to go deeper than just the beginning concept. Yes, I tr- truly agree with that. Well, tell us how people can reach Impact Partners, please. So we have a website, Impact Partners Film, um, where people can submit projects, but you can see 
you know, the over 80 films that we've funded. And we have little case studies about them, so you can kind of go on, see where they are now. You know, it links you to where you can download them or stream them or see them or license them. So it's a pretty comprehensive website. Um, and then we also have a, um, a film fund that's we're just finished um, our last investment of Game Changer, which is a film for women directors in the narrative space. And we'll be, you know, looking at raising another fund to start supporting, because um, you continue supporting uh, female directors in the narrative space. And there's a website for that, too, gamechangers.com. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm so excited about that. Thank you so much. You know, I really wanted to get into distribution, but perhaps in, a, in the future you'd come back and go, get into community screenings and distribution, how to get the most out of your film by getting it to your right audience. Oh, yeah, and there's so many filmmakers that have been successful at that. You could also talk to Jennifer Siebel Newsom at the Representation Project, who did Misrepresentation, and Vicki Abelis, who did Beyond Measure, and Race to Nowhere. I mean, she's now had 10,000 community screenings. She's like the queen of like outreach oh, and community great. screenings. Um, so there are filmmakers that are particularly gifted in that area. Um, mm-hmm. We don't do that distribution, but we fund filmmakers that have it in their plans, and we know who some of the best people are that do it. Um, but, it, you know, I could give you some ideas of, like, case studies of, like, who's done it best, and you could talk to them. Oh, that's uh, perfect. That's exactly what we'd like to do. Well, thank you very much for all your knowledge and for all the work you're doing to change belief patterns. Well, let's hope that it's actually going to really, really resonate um, in ways that will just make us all be better and more respectful and kinder and more loving towards one another because that's ultimately what's at stake here with this disparity or this you know, gender imbalances. It, 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 it gets in the way of, of us fully realizing our human potential. And um, for that reason alone, it's worth examining and then fighting um, when, when necessary if something's unfair. Exactly. Thank you so much. Best of luck to you. Thank you, hey, well, Claire. I mean, all that you do, we really appreciate it. You're a, you're a field builder too, so thanks for disseminating all these ideas. Oh, you're quite welcome. <laughs> nice. Thank okay. you. Okay, that's great. Okay. Bye. Okay. All Bye. right. Thanks, Geraldine. Great show, Carol. Thanks. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. 
That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.